Hi everyone. As you've probably noticed, I've stopped putting out these solo episodes. The download numbers said that they were becoming less and less popular over time, and they actually take a fair bit of effort to do. For a guy who enjoys talking, it's actually really difficult for me to just sit here and talk to myself. But from time to time, I'll still put them out if I have something worthwhile to say. And my hope is that by doing less of these, I'll actually have more time to get back to my Poetry for Men series. Remember those? Yeah, it's been about a year. But before I get back to them, I actually thought I'd do another episode talking about my relationship with the Moscow-Idaho crew, such as it is. But before I do that, I have exciting news. My very first Renaissance of Men t-shirt is now available, and I'm thrilled with it. I did a limited run with an exclusive design featuring the line from Proverbs, The Righteous Will Never Be Shaken. But here's the part I'm proudest of. The shirt is being sold exclusively on the website Source Christian Apparel, which is run by two young women. Why am I proud of that? Because these two ladies are faithful Christian wives who sacrifice their careers to stay at home and support their husbands. Source Christian Apparel is their attempt to build a home-based business to do just that. They reached out to me months ago, and this launch, my very first piece of Renaissance of Men merchandise ever, is the fulfillment of that. This is the great reconciliation in action, with women making righteous sacrifices for their household and men stepping up to support them. That's why I couldn't be prouder to create this win-win-win for Julia and Anna from Source, the Renaissance of Men, and you. So, if this sounds good to you, hit the link in the description to visit their site and check out the new shirt. It's on a super soft tee, and it was designed by my friend Todd Van Fleet, who does shirts for many men in the space, whose names you might recognize. Again, click the link in the description to visit Source Christian Apparel and buy your new shirt. Remember though, this is a limited run, so don't wait. And thank you to Julia and Anna from Source for making this possible. So now, as I was saying, back to Moscow. Recently, I've come to appreciate just how controversial the Moscow project is. It's been something I've been thinking about for a really long time and trying to understand, and I think I finally cracked it. And so I wanted to do this episode so that you understand my perspective on the Moscow crew, and perhaps also I can set the stage for the direction of the Renaissance of Men in the future. So before I get into the meat of the episode, let me tell you how I first discovered Doug Wilson. As you've heard me say many times, I was baptized in September of 2020. I went for about a year without really being part of a church. It was during COVID, so it was kind of tough to find churches that were open at the time. Then I spoke at the 21 convention in October of 2021, and there I met Pastor Michael Foster. I explained to him my predicament, and he pointed me to Apologia and Pastor Jeff Durbin. So I started attending Apologia in October and November of 2021. Now cut to New Year's Eve at the end of that December. I was visiting a friend up in Spokane, Washington, and while there, I probably got the Rona. I was laid up in bed for about four days, suffering through fever and chills. It wasn't anything that my immune system couldn't handle. It was just a bit of an imposition as I occupied my friend's guest room for about four extra days. So while I was lying there in bed, I devoured as many Jeff Durbin sermons as I could find. I put them on YouTube and would just queue up one after another after another, lying there sweating and learning about Calvinism and postmillennialism essentially, though I wouldn't have known to call them that. Then, after about three days... The YouTube algorithm started suggesting someone new to me. I didn't recognize his name, but I did like what he had to say. He was mirthful and grandfatherly, entertaining and yet very direct, and his name was Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson was talking about how he was part of Canon Press, and I thought to myself at the time, Canon Press? That sounds really familiar. A few sermons into my bedridden watching binge, 
the Holy Spirit brought Michael Foster's name to mind in his book, It's Good to Be a Man. Something about the two seemed familiar. Can't impress, It's Good to Be a Man. Then I went to Amazon and discovered that It's Good to Be a Man was published by Canon Press. And then, not long after, wouldn't you know it, YouTube showed me a video of Michael Foster, Jeff Durbin, and Doug Wilson sitting at a table in Moscow, Idaho, having a discussion. So that is how I discovered Doug Wilson. No one sent me a controversial blog post. I hadn't seen any of the outrage bait, nor had I witnessed any controversy on Twitter. I was barely even on Twitter at the time. It was just the YouTube algorithm sending me content that I might like and getting introduced to it on its own terms. And I can tell you, if you encounter Doug Wilson on his own terms, his content is very compelling, which is why back in January of 2022, I started devouring as much of it as I could find, from blog and May blog entries to books, interviews, sermons, and much more. This was still fairly early on in my Christian journey, but I appreciated that a man was addressing the cultural issues of masculinity, culture, and family head-on without apology. I thought that was great because I was just coming out of the manosphere, which always took a take-no-prisoners approach to cultural issues. I was looking for the same within Christianity, and thanks to YouTube, I found it, and I didn't understand that there was anything that was quote-unquote wrong. The first indication that I had stumbled onto a pastor that other people regarded as off-limits was when I was on the phone with a Christian documentary film producer in March or April of 2022, about four months later. I happened to mention to him that I was into Doug Wilson, and he said, oh, you should probably stay away from that guy, and didn't elaborate. Then this producer stopped returning my emails. He never said why, but the reason felt pretty clear. The name Doug Wilson had definitely chilled the conversation. I thought, that's odd, because everything that I had seen of Doug Wilson was pretty great. In fact, it fit right in line with my discussions of masculinity. So I wrote off the documentary film producer as just being busy and went about my business. Later that year, one of my former clients, who's probably listening to this, had his wife threaten to separate from him if he signed up for my mentorship with me because I had spoken to Doug Wilson on my podcast. Now, I thought that was a bit extreme, but again, it's not unusual that feminists react pretty hard to Doug Wilson's presence, again, because of his unapologetic nature. Doug Wilson derangement syndrome, I think it's called. Of course, I could string together many more data points, but from that time about a year ago until now, they've all indicated that there's more going on beneath the surface of the world's reaction to Doug Wilson than was immediately apparent to me. But one of the big pieces of information that I struggled with was Doug Wilson's repeated assertion that he had been boxed out of the so-called Big Eva and Mid-Eva conference circuit. I just didn't get that, probably because I didn't fully understand the Christian publishing industry. One of the things I've slowly come to recognize over time is that there is, in fact, a Christianity industry. And it was grasping that reality that helped me understand why Doug Wilson is so controversial, and which will also explain why I felt the need to do this episode. So if you've listened to this season, you've probably heard the subject of purity culture come up over and over again from different guests. I talked about it with Rebecca Merkel and Tim Regal especially. For those of you who follow me on Instagram, I've also had private conversations with Christiana, aka Dear Sister, about it. It seems that something powerful and significant happened in the 1990s that shaped Christian culture in a way that's echoing forward even until today. All this is just to say that the last place I ever expected in my entire life was to end up in the Christian content industry, let alone running a podcast and even working on a film about it. So now having walked into this room, I'm trying to figure out how Christianity got where it is today and the various threads that are all tying together to produce this knot that we're all working to untie. 
Okay, so now back to Doug Wilson. Whatever it is he's doing seems to be putting a finger directly on a very painful spot within the Christian content industry. And not necessarily painful in a bad way, but painful in a necessary way. Not that those in the industry can tell the difference. So why are Christians reacting so strongly to what he has to say, and what are they reacting most strongly to? As far as I can tell, it's entirely about the family. And not only that, it's about women's place in the home, which explains why feminists of both sexes have regular freakouts whenever Doug Wilson speaks. That is the entire purpose behind No Quarter November, and why, for four or five years running every year, he sets something on fire. That is the effect that he has on his environment. He's making a joke, but it's very, very real. And just to tie a couple of pieces together, remember, I encountered Doug Wilson for who he is, not because anyone told me about him, but because I got to make an evaluation for myself. How can such common sense content have such an impact on people? It's got to be more than feminism. And turns out it is. Other people, including Joe Rigney, have reached similar conclusions in their own language for what I'm about to say. But this is my conclusion in my language. Okay, here we go. This is what I figured out. Sometime in the 1980s or the 1990s, it was discovered that Christians could make a lot of money selling Christian content to Christian people. When I was a young man in the 90s and I first got exposed to Christian contemporary music, this was apparent to me unconsciously. I would listen to the music and it was very clear that for where I was at in life in the secular world, that music wasn't for me. In the same way, lots of Christian content began being produced for Christian people that was, let's say, inward-facing. Purity culture was a part of this. Purity culture didn't have anything to say to the larger American culture. It was directing Christians to behave in so-called Christian ways and leaving the rest of culture alone. Christian contemporary music was the same. Big Eva and Mid Eva were also the same. They recognized that by producing Christian content for Christian audiences and ignoring the larger culture, they could make quite a lot of money. And in that, I think they made a fateful deal. During my time producing my documentary, I have discovered just how true it is in how many circles of men that money talks. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you do it. It doesn't matter what your values are. The only thing that some men care about is how much money you make. So if we return to Christian publishing, I think many men discovered that they can make a lot of money selling Christian content to Christian audiences that didn't face outward to the larger American culture, and the amount of money they made earned them a specific status within the larger secular world. It's as if a lot of Christian men who were flush with cash showed up in secular circles, and the secular people said, we don't really care how you got here. We just care that you don't mess up our game. And the people who had made all the money in Christian publishing said, no problem. We can continue publishing content for our people and never mess up anything that you're doing. That is the nature of Big Eva, Mid Eva, and much of Christian publishing. We'll make Christian content for Christian people and not rock the American cultural boat because we might lose our status and our access. I have seen this more times than I can count. It's the quiet agreements that men and women make with themselves not to speak truth because they know how much it will cost them. If I cut off just this little point of doctrine, then the people around will continue to accept me and I can go on about my business as if I'm still standing for what I say I am. This explains Christian contemporary music and purity culture, not to mention the entire Christian publishing industry that has grown to billions of dollars and not had a single effect on the slide of American culture into secularism, paganism, 
and 60 million abortions. I've never actually read a Tim Keller book, but viewed this way, he's not the problem. He's just a symptom of Christian publishers and conferences that recognize they could make a lot of money by not saying certain things. But those certain things needed to be said in order to prevent America from getting into the position it's currently in, which just goes to show the magnitude of the failure. Think of it this way. Christian publishing spent decades talking about John 3.16 so they wouldn't have to talk about Genesis 3.16. And no one noticed the difference. And in case you're wondering, yes, I did tweet that. And if you're wondering about the incentives as well, I just did a quick Google search of the size of the Christian publishing industry and the first result that came up from the creativepen.com in 2014 says, quote, the Christian market is a $1.2 billion market, around 10% of the broader U.S. publishing market. So you can see we're dealing with quite a lot of money, quite a lot of incentive not to speak up, quite a lot of boats that a lot of people don't want to have rocked, quite a lot of fires that no one would like to have started, which explains why Doug Wilson put on a flamethrower. It also explains, I think, why he's been boxed out of the larger Christian dialogue for so long. Christian publishing recognized that it could make $1.2 billion by saying Christian things to Christian audiences and not confronting the broader culture. This has been going on for decades. It also explains why Christianity Today, the Gospel Coalition, and so many contemporary Christian musicians are all going apostate or quote-unquote deconstructing. They decided long ago that they wouldn't actually talk about real Christian doctrine to a fallen American nation because they preferred the money over the full truth. I can't actually say how widespread this is, but one thing that's very apparent to me now is precisely why Doug Wilson was boxed out. He was the guy that didn't sign up for the agenda. God gave him a spine, a brain, and a pair of hands, and they weren't for sale. And I suspect this explains the root of the Moscow Project. He couldn't find a publisher for his books, so he started Canon Press. He couldn't find a school for his children, so he built Logos and New St. Andrews. He couldn't find conferences to host him, so he started Grace Agenda. And he couldn't find a media outlet, so he built Canon Plus. Now, I can't say whether all of this is the truth or not, but it certainly fits the facts. Imagine a large-scale Christian publishing industry that has consciously decided not to preach the gospel to American culture in exchange for making a billion dollars. Then a man comes along and says, hey, I don't think that's very Christian. And they say, get lost. Well, what does that man do? I can tell you what I would do. I would start everything I needed to on my own, including my own town, to preach the truth at all costs. Run that for about 40 years and what happens? You've got a few churches, a couple schools, countless stacks of books, a media empire, social influence, and thousands, if not millions of people whose lives you've touched. Well, what is the next logical conclusion? Politics. And that explains the Christian Nationalism Project. The Christian Nationalism Project is the final refutation of the deal made by the Christian publishing industry, which had determined that it would constrain the limits of its dialogue to what was considered acceptable by secular power structures. That Rob Reiner has even weighed in to register the unacceptability of Christian nationalism demonstrates just how afraid they are. Meanwhile, Christian nationalism and mere Christendom are the end product of 40 years of work, of being considered an outsider and conducting business in an outsider way. And the deal that Christian publishing and Big Eva made is reaching its sell-by expiration date, but it really started going bad in 2020 during the great COVID capitulation. Now the piper needs to be paid 
which is why you're seeing the push for woke churches, LGBT, female pastors, and whatever is going on with Russell Moore. It's not that the selling out is new. It's that the selling out was done decades ago, and now we're seeing it for what it is. Let's call this the grand unified theory of modern American Christendom. To me, this explains why modern American Christendom is so weak and so flaccid and resists or even fears any hard-edged masculine approaches to real social problems. Modern American Christians have been raised on a diet of cotton balls and gumdrops because their leaders decided that they would not give them pure Christian truth decades ago. So men have grown as soft as their teachers have. And so when you introduce actual masculine dialogue into the discussion, people lose their minds. This also explains why Twitter went absolutely code red over Christian nationalism this year. What was the one thing Christians were not supposed to do? Well, guess what? That's the one thing that's getting done. In fact, I'd regard it as the last hope. Either we fight for a renewed Christian nation, regardless of the consequences, or we allow secularism and the myth of the neutral state to reach its inevitable end. And let me say a quick word about that. I've been spending a lot of time on Twitter lately, because that's where the action is, and I've gotten in a few useful debates. One of them was about the recent beheading of the Satan statue in the Iowa State Capitol building. In one such debate, I explained how Satanism isn't a religion in quite the same way we understand it. They don't worship a deity. They worship the human ego, human desires, and the human will to fulfill those desires independent of any moral consideration. Meaning, there is no higher law than the fulfillment of the human will. This is what Aleister Crowley, the wickedest man to ever live, meant when he said, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Translation, All that matters is that you do what you want. That is the only law. There is nothing higher. So, Satanism isn't about Satan, per se. It's more about what Satan preaches. It's not atheism either, because atheism says there is no God. I don't think Satanism takes a formal position on that. Instead, Satanism is a response to God's law. Satanism says in response, there is no law, and avoids the question of God entirely. Do you see it? The difference is very subtle, very devious, and very fitting for the father of lies. Not thy will, but mine be done. If you've heard me talk about the New Age at all, I urge you to consider that I know what I'm talking about. Not Satanism per se, because I don't think I could ever put my conscience in the freezer enough to pursue my own sinful heart's wickedest desires, praise God, but from ideas that were tracking very, very closely to it. That's how I know this stuff. In other words, This is what God delivered me from, and that is a podcast all its own. Now here's the problem with secular liberalism, which claims the neutrality of the state. If religious pluralism allows open defiance of God's law, and any law in fact, you have a conundrum. Matter and antimatter cannot exist in the same space. They annihilate each other. In the same way, law and anti-law cannot exist in the same space. The result is chaos one must win, and there is no third option. So what we saw in Iowa is the natural conclusion of the myth of the secular state. We remove God's law so far from the realm of politics that anti-law creeps in and becomes the order that must be defended. And so now the choice is before us as Christian men and women whether we will have law or anti-law. Will we have Satan nationalism or Christian nationalism? And I hate to tell you, But failure to choose the good is, in effect, the same as choosing evil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
Matthew 12, verse 30. Doug Wilson and the Moscow Project are controversial because they're saying God's law is supreme. Yes, the Constitution is the highest law of the land, but it exists within the highest law of the cosmos. And this is the one thing evangelicalism had promised not to say. The controversy showed up first in Doug's discussion of federal vision, which no one can quite define, but that apparently makes feminists of both sexes quite mad. So surely it has to do with the family, which is just code for saying that scripture is clear that women belong in the home, raising children and contributing to home-based businesses as their husbands help meet, and not pursuing their own agenda in politics or commerce. See Proverbs 31 for more. That is an unsayable thing, the core refutation of what I call the feminist theology. And yet Doug has said it. Not only that, he and his family have embodied it. They show and don't tell. And that, I believe, explains Doug Wilson derangement syndrome. It's not about what he says, but what he and his family are, something the unholy feminine recognizes immediately. And having taken a valuable beachhead in that front of the war, Doug has moved on to politics, saying another unsayable thing. Christ is Lord over all, and all means all, and that includes not just the home and family, but politics. The post-millennial vision extends beyond our house and into the White House and beyond. It radiates out from home and hearth to institutions and even into space, which I think explains, at least in part, Doug Wilson's love for the C.S. Lewis Ransom trilogy. Check the link in the show notes for a podcast I did with him and the author Christiana Hale last year about that series of books. Add all these things up and you get something that I can only describe as distinctly Christian. There's no other word for it. And if you ask me, Doug Wilson and Moscow's commitment to Christianity shows how much other men aren't committed to it at all. Not really. So imperfect man though he may be, he is still a mirror and an uncomfortable one to look in because he reveals evangelicalism's willfully blind spots. And I think he shines light into aspects of influential men's character that they'd rather not have revealed. And yet, as the Kevin DeYoung article showed, sometimes these men just can't help themselves. Now, why am I saying all this? I thought it was important that I let you, my loyal listeners, know where I stand in all this for the wars to come. I have no formal relationship with Moscow. I haven't met any of them in person, save for Toby Sumter twice, briefly, and Chocolate Knox just once. I don't even know if the others would recognize me walking down the street. But having encountered their ideas on my own, served up by the algorithm when I didn't know what I needed and wasn't even looking, praise God, I've had the chance to evaluate what I see on its own terms, not the world's. And this episode is about what I've seen. Now, my story might not be correct. I might be projecting some of what I'm about onto others, because I'm certainly missing a few key details. But if it were true, the predicted response is exactly what we'd be seeing. Quote, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. 2 Corinthians 2 verses 15 and 17. Now I'm not suggesting that if you don't like Doug Wilson or his ideas, you're unsaved. That's not what I mean. Rather, that the insane response that many have that Doug Wilson's ideas mean, quote, death should be indicative of something. Offering a rebuke of something is different from shutting it down entirely. But to date, I haven't yet heard a rebuke that I agree with. I've heard denunciations and dire warnings. People are always very, very concerned, and they take issue with this detail or that. But what I haven't heard yet is, no, that's wrong. That's not what it says. That's not what it means. 
All doesn't mean all. Paul didn't mean it. Jesus didn't talk about that. It's about relationship, not law. God is a feeling. Why can't we all just get along? Do you see? This is the trajectory of ideas. As soon as you start saying the Bible doesn't say what it says, beginning with the home in which its teachings are explicitly clear, it all falls apart from there. And that is where it began with the French Revolution, which stood in opposition to the American Revolution, as discussed in Doug Wilson's book Mere Christendom, and then it progressed from there to feminism, which, as I discussed with Rachel Wilson, was a cult in origins. Then to the deception of privileged women in the 60s, as I discussed with Professor Janice Fiamengo, and from there into broader culture as, quote, liberated women found their way into every corner of every institution. Now here we are, where we can't even say that the goat-headed statue of Satanism is wrong, at least not without one courageous man taking self-sacrificial action. It is all connected. Everything is connected. And I believe it's my job, at least in part, to help you see. That will be my mission for 2024 and beyond, to assemble the big pieces, to show you the big picture and find detail, as I see it, so you can consider how I think and see if it jives with how you think, or if it could, or if we can meet somewhere in the middle. Because friends, this is war. 2024 is approaching. Depending on when you're listening to this, it might already be here. That means an election year, and election season and its insanity fast approaching. Tumultuous waters are ahead. We had little to no warning in 2020, but we've had four years of warning now. Turmoil is coming, and that can be a fertile breeding ground for reformation and revival, if we're willing to fight for it in our homes, in the public square, and everywhere in between and beyond. If you didn't at least halfway agree with me, you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast. So I ask you to consider now what it is that Moscow represents, why it is so hated, who it's hated by, and whether that makes its ideas worth siding with or at least considering. And before I close this episode and the year, I want to add one thing. Pastor Doug Wilson is no messiah. Our culture is so saturated with movies full of Christ figures like in Braveheart, Gladiator, and The Matrix that we can't distinguish between a man fighting for truth and truth itself. I believe this is intentional. But there is a difference. There are men and the God-man. There are heroes and the God who invented heroism and then displayed it in his son. One is meant to point the way to what the other is. Don't get it twisted. But I'll tell you what they have in common. Masculinity or the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Perhaps you recognize that definition. And if not, I bet you can guess whose it is. I came to Christ through attempting to understand masculinity. That led me to produce a documentary, which led me to Mexico, then to Spokane, sickness, and an algorithmic blessing. I wasn't looking for truth, but truth found me, and started up a conversation. And it's now taken me three years to figure out what all the fuss is about. And these are my conclusions. I have concluded that I am going to fight. Moscow is hoisting the colors. One month of the year, that banner looks like a skull and two crossed pencils. But the rest of the year, it looks like the banner of King Christ, whatever you imagine that to be. And that king will win, triumphing over death itself. In fact, he already has. Hallelujah, and praise God for the redemption of sinners like me and the chance to make our lives into a living sacrifice for him. And may we all, those of us who feel called, discover that to live is Christ and to die is gain, but death has no sting. 
With that in mind, how can we not take up arms? Happy 2024, Renaissance of Men. Let's go. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.